Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day Spooky Season. Welcome to TGI Crime Day and a happy spooky Halloween. If it's not Halloween when you're watching this or listening to it, I hope you're keeping some of that Halloween spirit alive in your heart, no matter what month it is. That's fun. Let me know what month you're watching this if it's in the future. Today we are going into part three of Urban Legends from each state. I will link parts one and two in the description so you can easily find those. And then there will be one last part after this to finish off the series. And then I'll also have that linked in the description once it's up. I really enjoyed doing this series and I hope that you have liked it as well. As always, you can send me an email with your favorite urban legend from your hometown, your favorite ghost story, uh, the time that you visit a cemetery and saw a spectral being, whatever you would like, anything true crime or spooky related, send it to me, all the spooky things. I would love for you to send me those to tgicrimeday at gmail.com and I would love to share those in a future listener stories episode. So send those to me, all your stories. All right, let's get spooky with today's spooky tales from around the country. I'm gonna miss pulling papers out of this little jar when we're done with this series. All right, what's up first? Tennessee. In Adams, Tennessee, there's a cave and historical landmarker on a farm once owned by a man named John Bell and his family in the early 1800s. Around 1817, the Bell family started having very strange experiences. The spooky happenings included John seeing a strange creature in the yard that had the body of a dog but the head of a rabbit. The family would often have their covers pulled off of them while they slept, only to find no one near the end of their bed. Something pounding on the outside walls in the middle of the night, but when they would run outside to catch the troublemaker, there was no one in sight. Items inside the house would move by themselves, and eventually, whatever was doing all of these things spoke to the family. This spirit, or whatever she was, told the family her name was Kate. Apparently, Kate became louder and louder, and she told the family that she hated John Bell and promised that someday she would kill him. The Bell's daughter, Betsy, was also targeted by Kate, who apparently disapproved of her upcoming wedding. Betsy would be attacked as she slept and would wake up with weird scratches and welts on her face. The family asked people around town for help with the entity that everyone started calling the Bell Witch. Bell's sons served in the military under General Andrew Jackson, and there are many accounts saying that Jackson visited the farm in 1819 after hearing about the Bell Witch from the boys. The story goes that Jackson had a horse-drawn wagon and several men with him when he went to go stay with the Bells. As the wagon got closer to the farm, suddenly the horses stopped and would not move. Jackson told his men, quote, By the eternal boys, it's the witch. They were all dumbfounded when a woman's voice replied, All right, General, let the wagon move on. I will see you tonight. Jackson and his men were supposed to stay with the Bells for a week, but after experiencing spooky witch activity, they packed up and left after the first night. Only a year later, John Bell suddenly passed away. The family found a strange vial with some kind of liquid inside the room where John's body was found, and none of them had seen this vial before and couldn't figure out where it came from. They did what is, in my opinion, the worst option possible, and fed the rest of the liquid to the family cat, who immediately died. It appeared that John had died from being poisoned by someone, possibly by Kate the Bell Witch. California I absolutely love a good ghost town story, and this one from Bodie, California is one of the best that I've heard. Bodie, California is one of the best preserved Old West outposts. Bodie became an official state historic park in 1962, and there is a museum and multiple buildings that still mostly stand today. 
Back in 1859, when Waterman S. Bodie discovered a small amount of gold in the hills of Mono Lake, he was thrilled, of course, and wanted to start a mining town. This was the middle of the gold rush. We were out there getting that gold, baby. Unfortunately, Bodie died when he attempted to return to this area, but that didn't stop the gold mining town from being built. Around 9,000 people moved there, and they named the town after Bodie, the man who started it all. Let's just say the people out in the California desert raking in those gold chunks were going absolutely bananas. Many buildings went up to provide the essentials to the miners, breweries, saloons, dance halls, gambling parlors, and of course, a good old opium den. Unfortunately, this boom didn't last long. The gold ran dry pretty quick, and soon the town's population began to decline by 1882. By 1886, only 1,500 of that original 9,000 still lived in Bodie. A horrible fire took down most of the town in 1892, and a final fire in 1932 was the final straw. Bodie became a ghost town once and for all. Almost 30 years later, in 1962, the decision would be made that Bodie would be preserved, but not restored. Now people can visit the ghost town and see what's left. Over the years, people would steal little keepsakes from Bodie, an old beer mug from the saloon, nails from the rundown buildings, and there's even one story of someone that stole one of those old-timey pianos. I still can't figure out how they got away with that one or how they got it out of there, but they did. Eventually, these items were being returned in the mail because the people who took these items were experiencing horrible luck. From deaths in the family to car crashes and every minor inconvenience in between. All of these people agreed on one thing. The trouble started after they'd taken something from Bodhi, so there must be some kind of a curse. The workers would display the items and the letters in the gift shop so that people would keep their sticky fingers to themselves. However, the curse of Bodhi was just a spooky urban legend that one of the park workers made up to get people to leave stuff where they found it. When word got around about the so-called curse, people started sending things back to the museum, even things that they'd bought at the gift shop, worried that they had this real curse on them. This made-up curse sort of turned into a real curse for the workers because then people started stealing stuff only to send it back so they could go back later and see their pretend stolen items and letters on display in the gift shop at a later date. Once that started happening, the workers stopped mentioning the curse as much because they got so sick of the amount of mail they were getting of people stealing stuff and then returning it just to be, like, goofy, I guess. However, one of the items that was never returned was that old piano. Here's an idea. What if that piano actually was cursed, but then the person who stole it took the curse with them and then none of the other items were cursed after that? Now there's your urban legend. Ooh, Hawaii! Hawaii has some of the most fascinating legends I've ever heard that range from beautiful to absolutely terrifying. One of my favorite legends that I read while researching for this episode is the legend of the Green Lady. The story goes that there was once a woman and her children who visited the Wahiwa Botanical Garden on Oahu. I hope that I'm saying that correctly. I'm sorry if I'm not. The Wahiwa Botanical Garden is a gorgeous 27-acre tropical forest. There are some areas of this forest that get very dense, and at some point, one of this woman's children wandered away and got lost. The woman searched for hours, crying out for her lost child, and eventually she died from heartbreak when the child was never found. It's said that she perhaps stayed in the forest, wandering until she became one with the forest. A ghostly woman is sometimes seen and has been described as having green skin, fish-like scales, jagged teeth, and hair that is covered in seaweed. This, of course, is how she got the name, the Green Lady. Legend has it that people will sometimes smell the sudden odor of decaying plants, and that signals that she is near, still wandering the gulch, searching for her missing child. There's a legend that says there's a colony of alligators living in the sewers of New York City. 
It sounds like an actual nightmare. Can you imagine peeking into a manhole only to see the horrifying sight of a huge reptile staring back at you? It turns out this nightmare was a reality for multiple people. This one freaks me out. I... Alligators really stress me out. Panic erupted through New York in 1935 when the New York Times put out a paper with the headline, Alligator Found in Uptown Sewer. On February 9th, 1935, a group of teenagers in East Harlem spotted something strange in a storm drain. A 125-pound, fully grown, 8-foot alligator. The boys were able to lasso the alligator with a clothesline and pull it out of the sewer, and when it snapped at them, they killed it with their snow shovels. This was when the rumors flew, saying that someone had flushed a baby alligator down their toilet, and it ended up in the sewer where it grew into a fully grown, vicious alligator. But the more likely idea is that because back in the 1920s through 1940s, it was very popular for rich people to own exotic pets. It's obviously still very popular for rich people to own exotic pets, but we have a few more laws in place so this exact situation doesn't happen. People would get tired of taking care of the alligators or they would start to outgrow the bathtubs they'd been keeping them in, so they would set them loose most likely into a storm drain. In Fran Capo's book, Myths and Mysteries of New York, she said, quote, there have been about 12 sightings of alligators in the sewers over the years. That's too many. But you would need many more to create a thriving colony of them beneath the city. So while it's not exactly probable, she's definitely not saying it's impossible. And I hate that. Who's next? Missouri. Many sources say that the Al Foster Trail in St. Louis, Missouri is one of the most haunted places in Missouri and one of the most haunted roads in the U.S. This trail is better known by its nickname, Zombie Road, and there is no shortage of stories about this haunting two-mile stretch of unpaved road. Zombie Road got its nickname back in the late 1950s when an urban legend started going around that there was some spooky guy who lived in a shack alone in the woods and would attack teens who went out to the woods to get some alone time. Other people say that this so-called zombie killer is the ghost of a man who was hit by a passing train. One of the spookiest stories I read about Zombie Road was told by Alec Matuzic. She said that in 2013, she went for a late night walk with her aunt through the foggy Missouri forest. Alec said everything was quiet and still, but then, quote, we hear this high-pitched squeal, almost sounding like it was from a teenage girl. As we hear this sound, I feel this sharp pain on my leg, end quote. After getting highly freaked out, Alex and her aunt quickly left the trail and headed home. Alex was shocked to find multiple large scratches on her leg. She couldn't come up with a logical explanation for the scratches since she'd been wearing multiple layers, including her leather riding chaps. Alex said before this trip to Zombie Road, she was skeptical about supernatural activity, but this event has turned her into a believer. Iowa. In the Oakland Cemetery in Iowa stands a towering angel statue that was built as a monument to the Feldebert family in 1912. The eight and a half foot tall statue is beautiful, but also very haunting and full of sorrow. This angelic statue has its arms spread wide with large wings that are slightly curved like it's protecting the grave it marks. When it was built, it was shiny and bronze, but over the last 100 years or so, it slowly turned more and more black. This is obviously due to oxidizing and wear from being exposed to the elements for so long, but, of course, people come up with their own stories for why the statue looks so different. This statue has become known as the Black Angel of Oakland Cemetery, and the urban legend people created for it is chilling, to say the least. Local legend says that anyone who kisses the statue will die instantly, and some people say that each Halloween, the statue suddenly becomes even more weathered-looking as a reminder of how many souls she's claimed. I also read that going and kissing someone under the statue is like a rite of passage for the University of Iowa students. 
Is that true? Are you guys really out there kissing in the cemetery under a haunted statue? I love it. If you've done this, please tell me everything. Next up, Minnesota. Minnesota has one of my favorite stories in this series, and that is the legend of the Kensington Runestone. In 1898, a farmer named Olaf Omen discovered something strange in his fields. He was clearing some land when his shovel hit something hard, and as he continued digging, he uncovered this big slab of sandstone with symbols written on it. Upon further inspection, it was determined that the symbols were Scandinavian runes that told the story of Norse sailors landing in Minnesota in 1362. The runes were translated, quote, We are eight Swedes and 22 Norwegians on an exploration journey from Vinland through the West. We had a camp by the lake with two scaries, paws, which are small rock islands. I had to look that up because I was like, what is a scary? So they had the camp by two small rocky islands. One day's journey from this stone. We were out and fished one day, and after we came home, we found ten of our men, red with blood and dead. AVM, save us from evil. We have ten of our party by the sea to look after our ships. Fourteen days journey from this island, year 1362. End quote. And AVM means Ave Virgo Maria or Hail Virgin Mary. So apparently this sandstone absolutely exists. It's on display in a museum. People have seen it. It's definitely real. But the origin of the sandstone is called into question. And if it's real, it would place sailors in America 130 years before Christopher Columbus. And there are no other records of these sailors coming out here besides that stone. When it was analyzed in 1988, it was called a fake by experts because there were too many things that didn't match up with the form and vocabulary of 14th century Scandinavia. People theorized that Olaf himself had planted it on his own farm as a hoax, but that begs the question, why? And how would Olaf have known those runes, even enough to incorrectly use them? When the stone was analyzed again in 2003, it was determined to be at least 200 years old, meaning that either way, by the time it was found by Olaf, it was almost 100 years old. Whichever story is the truth about the Kensington runestone, it has caused a lot of arguments between scholars, experts, and of course, conspiracy theorists over the years. What do you think? Is it real? Ooh, Rhode Island! Did you know that Rhode Island was once known as the vampire capital of America? By the late 1800s, Exeter, Rhode Island was mostly abandoned because people had learned that this area was not suitable for farming, which made it very difficult to live there. Mercy Lena Brown and her family lived in the town, but tuberculosis was running rampant and claimed the lives of her mom and her older sister. Searching for some kind of an explanation for how their town could be losing so many people to consumption, rumors started spreading about what was really causing people to cough up blood and slowly waste away, and the explanation agreed upon was vampires. Mercy Lena Brown was also taken by this disease in 1892, and soon after, her brother Edwin started showing the same symptoms. The father of the family, George, was devastated and couldn't bear to lose another child. George was somehow convinced to try something a little unconventional and extremely spooky. George had been convinced to exhume his family's bodies, and that was when they discovered that while his wife and oldest daughter were decomposing as normal, Mercy's body was in strangely good shape. She had blood in her heart and liver, probably because she had died in the winter and it was extremely cold in the tomb she was being kept, so that probably slowed down the decomposition. But it was the 1800s and vampire panic was sweeping through New England. The only explanation was that Mercy was undead. This was when the town came up with the most insane idea to burn her heart and liver and mix the ashes with water to create a tonic and then have Edwin drink the concoction. Unsurprisingly, Eating the slowly decaying organs of his sister didn't work, and Edwin died two months later. As I was reading this, I kept thinking how completely idiotic it sounds that anyone would have 
made this idea up and that other people would have gone along with it. But then it hit me that not too long ago, a certain someone suggested bleach injections to cure a highly contagious virus. So, there's that. People come up with all kinds of insane ideas to cure illnesses. Anyway, that's the story of how Rhode Island became known as the Vampire Capital of America, which I think is very cool and very spooky. It's also rumored that Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula in 1897, had newspaper clippings of the story about Vampire Mercy Brown in his files, so maybe there was a little inspiration there. New Hampshire. Danville, New Hampshire is home to the legend of the devil monkeys. As far back as 1923, it's been said that there are creatures lurking in the mountains who sometimes make their way down to the quiet suburban areas and cause all kinds of trouble. Witnesses describe them as being between three and eight feet tall with baboon or dog-like snouts and dark hair. They all agree that they are some kind of a primate with long claw-like nails and small pointy ears. People reported that these out-of-place creatures would sometimes attack and kill small dogs and livestock. The most recent devil monkey sighting happened in 2001 when the fire chief, David Kimball, saw something strange running through the streets before dawn. Chief Kimball described a reddish-brown coated primate with razor-sharp claws and a dog-like muzzle. When he reported this, other people came forward saying that they'd seen the same creature running around, but had been too embarrassed to report it, thinking that their minds must have been playing tricks on them. For about two weeks, the town was in a panic on constant lookout for this strange beast. But as time went on, the sighting slowed and the search party stopped and everything went back to mostly normal. However, history tends to repeat itself and urban legends never go away completely, so I wonder how long it will be before the devil monkeys make another appearance. We've got Virginia. We've got another spooky bridge, this time in Clifton, Virginia. Like many famous urban legends, this one begins with an insane asylum. The legend goes that the people of Clifton were not thrilled about some of the extremely violent people that were being kept in the mental hospital, and they were up in arms saying that the institution needed to transfer some of the more dangerous patients out of their city. So some of these patients were loaded up onto a bus to go elsewhere. However, the bus crashed and the patients escaped. The people were able to round up all of the escaped patients except for one the bunny man. The legend goes that the bunny man lived in the woods, living off the land, eating small animals like rabbits that he would skin and hang outside of his makeshift cabin. Eventually, he became violent and started attacking people who would wander into his territory with an axe. After he escaped, he managed to elude police, but then half-eaten rabbits started showing up, hanging from the trees in an area near an overpass on Colchester Road. The police knew right away who was responsible and the chase began. The bunny man was able to avoid capture for a time, but late one night, the police caught up with him. In an attempt to get away, he climbed up the overpass but didn't see the oncoming train, and ever since, it's been said that the bunny man haunts this bridge and leaves skinned rabbits hanging for unsuspecting people passing by the bridge. I've also heard a lot of different stories of people going to this bridge and having their car die, or their lights stop working, or any number of horrifying things that happen when you're on a dark, haunted bridge. The stories I read on Reddit from the Bunnyman Bridge were absolutely chilling, and I highly recommend taking that deep dive if you're looking for something spooky to read. <laughs> Next we've got... Ohio. The small township of Boston, Ohio was founded in 1806 in Summit County. In 1974, President Ford ordered everyone to leave the town because the town was supposed to be torn down to make room for the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. So everyone left and expected the deconstruction to begin, but it never happened. There are many rumors as to why this thriving town was shut down suddenly and turned into a ghost town almost overnight. Some people claim that the government shut the town down after a huge chemical spill that was causing people to mutate. 
There's also talk of this chemical spill creating mutant animals, including a huge snake known as the Peninsula Python. This area is now known today as Helltown, and legend has it that there are still some old townspeople hiding out in the abandoned buildings. There's allegedly an abandoned school bus that the land has claimed with overgrown plants and wildlife that is infested with ghosts. There is also a Presbyterian church left decaying where occult activity and sacrifices supposedly still happen. Um, Ohio babes, have you ever heard of this mysterious town? Have you been to this place? Because it seems like there's a lot of speculation on whether or not it ever existed, or if it still exists. Have you been there? And last, but certainly not least for today, is South Carolina. There is a Presbyterian cemetery on Estito Island in South Carolina that is home to an old mausoleum that people believe is haunted. The story goes that the Laguerre family was a wealthy family living on Estito Island in the 1800s. In 1852, one member of the Laguerre family, Julia, got extremely ill when she contracted diphtheria. Julie's family was of course devastated when she passed away and she was buried in their family mausoleum. A few years later, another member of the Laguerre family passed away, and when they opened up the tomb, they were horrified to find Julia's remains on the floor outside of her coffin. It turns out that Julia hadn't been dead after all, she'd been in a coma, and when she woke up inside the mausoleum, she tried to escape the tomb with no luck. Once they'd reopened the mausoleum to bury the second family member, they couldn't get the tomb to stay sealed. Other people who visited the cemetery reported seeing the mausoleum door wide open when it shouldn't have been, and they even had a new door put on the mausoleum, but every single time it was somehow reopened. Many people believe that Julia's ghost didn't want to be confined to the mausoleum and that she is responsible for the issues with the doors. This mausoleum still stands and is marked with the name J.B. Laguerre, and it seems that Julia got her wish because this mausoleum no longer has a door at all, so hopefully that means her spirit is able to roam as much as she wants. All right, we have reached the end of today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you will subscribe or follow wherever you get your audio podcasts. Our fourth and final part of Urban Legends from Every State will be up in the next couple of weeks, so I will have that linked for you whenever it's ready. Don't forget to send me your spooky tales to tgicrimeday at gmail.com, and I will see you soon. Happy Halloween!